Hello. Now, before I jump into this episode, I want to let you know about a free workshop that I'll be running online in early August 2022. So if you're listening to this uh, episode around its time of release, then be sure to save your spot. This free online workshop is called the top five home design mistakes and how to avoid them. And in it, I'll be going through the biggest and the most commonly made home design mistakes and my tips and tactics for avoiding them in your project. So whether you're renovating or you're building new and whoever you're working with, you'll find this free online workshop is packed full of actionable help and info. So you can save your spot for free by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash design mistakes. Now, let me get on with this episode. This is episode 244. And in it, I'm going to share some home design ideas and choices that I regularly see that are actually pet hates of mine, just because they really don't work. And I get pretty passionate about home designs that don't work, hence calling these things pet hates. This is going to be a chance to hear about some choices that I see regularly made in home design that in my experience just fall short when achieving functionality or a good outcome for the home and its use and ultimately for you as the homeowner. And with each of them, I'm also going to make some suggestions about what you can do as an alternative to get it right. So if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information on the resources that we're going to be discussing, you can do that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 244. That's the numbers two, four, four. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website, and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take, and the best way to create a home that works, feels great, and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. As an architect, it's hard to keep track of how many home floor plans I've designed. 
And I don't say that to boast. It's not just the 250 plus homes that I know are built and finished. It's it's all of the options that have been worked on and presented along the way. I reckon it'd easily be in the thousands and thousands. You know, these are floor plan designs that work. They're not just scribbles. They're actual floor plan designs that work. They would make great homes, but for loads of different reasons, they were not the preferred option that got presented to the client. They were either vetted, you know, before they got to the client or they were vetted by the client in their journey of choosing their ideal and future home design. You know, often I'd be presenting two or three options to a homeowner at one time. So lots and and lots of different designs. And of course, as an architect studying floor plan design, home design, it's an occupational pastime, you know, whether it's through collecting floor plan after floor plan that I see online uh, on websites or the free Facebook groups, or it's in the in-person visits to homes, you know, don't have me over to your house. <laughs> we'll certainly, I'll certainly check it out, you know. And I think most architects and designers will agree that it's their usual experience to see floor plans, you know, to observe them, to assess what's working and what's not working and to even collect them along the way. You know, I do, I do save them, uh, many of them myself. So, you know, before I dive into this episode, I do want to be really clear about something. Whenever I'm reviewing floor plans and I'm determining what could be done to improve them, it's not done from a point of view of it being a matter of taste or aesthetics. You know, for me, design, it's not about what something looks like. It's not about its colors or even its materials and detailing. You know, those things, I find that they're just too subjective and they totally come down to personal preferences. Equally, I do not see design as something that's high end or even necessarily award winning because you know, awards don't reward the best design. I know of many designers who actually completely disagree with the notion uh, that some architectural and design awards are based upon and they don't even enter, but they're doing brilliant design work. So I don't think that great design means that award-winning design is necessarily great design. And I also uh, believe that great design is definitely not the most expensive choice either. For me, Design is just about how something works, about how a problem gets solved or how that problem gets avoided altogether. And that's how I like to think about design and especially when it comes to home design. You know, the best home designs, they're solving the everyday problems in everyday life. They're making spaces, places and the things within them work better for us as the users of those spaces, places and things. And in fact, the best design works so well, it's almost invisible. It just gets out of our way and it streamlines whatever we're doing so that it's easier, it's more fun, it's more convenient, it's more enjoyable, more organised, more calm and we feel great in the process of using it. And in fact, Seth Godin, who, if you haven't heard of him, he's an amazing marketer, designer. He said this, design is about function. Everything that we do has a job. And if it's designed properly, the job will get done well. And when we think about what might go wrong, we're more likely to design something that goes right. So, you know, when you think about this in relation to your home, your home's job is a really important one beyond the pragmatics of, of shelter, safety, comfort. You know, there's been loads of research done to highlight the impacts and the importance of the quality of your uh, environment that your home provides on our lifestyles, on our well-being, our health, our anxiety and our stress levels and our ability to enjoy ourselves and feel fulfilled. And given how much time we're spending in our homes, especially over the past couple of years, this impact has definitely been amplified and felt more keenly by many. I think many can understandably get caught up in the aesthetics of creating a home, you know, all the finishes, the fixtures, the materials and the products that we see when we're researching and considering what we want in our future home. They're often presented in a really glossy, you know, Pinterest or Instagram worthy package. And then often we'll see that and we'll equate that with the quality of the design outcome. 
And it's definitely not helped by the fact that we're fed these glossy images, image after image, you know, of beautifully styled homes. And it, it is super rare for great design to be presented to us in a really ordinary package because, frankly, it doesn't photograph well. I've done a previous episode on, on the podcast about how styling does not equal design. Unfortunately, I've seen far too many homes that had terrible designs, but because they were styled incredibly well, it's easy to be fooled that it's a great home. And the fact is that styling and staging, it won't, it won't actually fix the functionality of a poorly designed home. I talked about this more in episode eight of season nine of the podcast. Season nine is actually called Keeping It Real. Uh, And I go through a lot of these kinds of myths that are fed by reality TV, magazines, social media that are starkly different to the real life renovating and building experience, uh, especially when it comes to the long-term family home. So I'll pop a link to that specific episode about styling and staging, not equal in great design. Um, And uh, yeah, that will go in the resources for this podcast episode if you'd like to check that out. Now, design as I think about it, it's not how something looks at all and it's not it's not something that can be achieved through a formula either I find. It's about how it works, how it feels and as a consequence how it helps you feel. Now, some of this will be universal. There are definitely things, you know, especially when it comes to your home that will work universally for family homes and that make a big difference to your everyday life and how you feel in and beyond your home and do that on a universal point of view. But some of these things, they're going to be unique to you, to your family and for the stage of life that you're in uh, and also your location and your site as well. So to me, when design is thought about like this, you know, it means that designers, they don't have this license or the stronghold on being the only ones who can design. And some of my design colleagues may uh, get annoyed with me saying something like that, Um, you know, But I I really don't think that designers have the license or the stronghold on being the only ones that can design, you know, great homes. It is worth recognising though that a lot of what makes great design, it actually gets learned through extensive experience, through testing, through experimentation and really proving ideas and theories and studying it, you know, creating a level of mastery over it all. And so, you know, when designers will have this approach to the way that they do their work and their practice, then they're definitely going to be more likely to know how to design well for those that hire them to do so. And that's why it can be really valuable to speak to, you know, to somebody to seek professional advice and assistance and input when you're designing something as financially and personally significant and impactful as your home. You know, it's it's worth recognising that you as a homeowner, you don't have the luxury of using your own home as a test or an experimental, you know, exercise. So you definitely want to be, you know, you can be really well served by a designer who, such as an architect or a building designer, who's really exposed to and they're experienced in the lives and the experiences of many people like you. And then they can guide you with what works and what doesn't as you create your future home. Inside Home Method, my flagship program, we actually spend a lot of time discussing design. There's a lot of steps involved in that part of understanding the process of renovating a building and how to get it right. And, you know, when it comes down to it, the floor plan design and then that that three-dimensional volume, the spaces and the rooms that you create, that's going to drive so much of your future life in that home and also beyond that home. The design determines how you feel, you know, what everyday life is like and how convenient or how frustrating it is as well. 
Plus, of course, decisions about your budget, your interaction with your site, your home's running costs, how adaptable the home's going to be to future changes in your lifestyle and your family. Plus, of course, so much more. And that's just for your family. You know, don't forget that your design's going to impact your neighbours. It's going to impact the planet, the future generations that have come to live in that home as well. Uh, they're all going to be impacted by the choices that you make through creating it. And my experience is that homeowners, you know, you actually get this. You really do understand this. And whether it's an explicit understanding or it's something that's more subconscious, I find that that's why homeowners will feel the pressure of the home design process and will have different approaches to the design process as well. And for some, you know, contending with the importance of the floor plan and home design overall, that's going to mean doing a huge amount of research and preparation to get clear on what you really want and need and then finding the right professionals and other support that, you know, is going to, it really enables you to feel like you're going to be able to achieve your goals. At the other end of the spectrum, I see homeowners choose a plan that they feel someone else has tested or that they may have experienced in person by visiting a display and then and then they might tweak it or they might change it more significantly to, ad to adopt some specific things that they want to include. You know, I've described both ends of the spectrums. There's also lots of range in the middle as well. Whichever is your approach, I feel that there can be a big challenge. And if you are comparing your home design ideas to your current point of reference or your existing experience, um, and your existing experience is actually as far as design goes, compromised and poorly functioning, and you've never personally experienced what it's like to live in a really fantastic, feel-good, functional home, then you can actually have a really hard time making decisions that serve you well. And so if you're assessing your home design ideas without that personal experience of living in a fantastic home previously, and then you also don't have great design guidance or access to high-level design experience guiding you through that process, then that can be really challenging to know whether what you're designing is the right thing for you or not. And I see this time and time again for homeowners who know they've been living in a house that doesn't work uh, but they've actually just got really used to those daily frustrations and they've never had lived experience of the alternative and so even a minor improvement seems like a really big deal to achieve and as a result they often sell themselves short of the potential of what their home design can be. And, you know, that's why in Home Method I provide lessons on home design and getting it right. Uh, and then, of course, I've got my room notes. There's room notes. There's over 44 pages of downloadable PDFs inside Home Method. I share recommendations on orientation, dimensions and layouts and mistakes to avoid, plus key things to remember. So, you know, I really want to help you get it right. And, of course, there's lots of free resources here on the podcast and on Undercover Architects website as well. Um, but Home Method is really about supporting you in making good choices when it comes to your home design. So I just wanted to really paint the picture and help you understand the context of how to think about home design and how I talk about home design and that is about functional feel-good family homes. And so as we dive into talking about pet hates in home design, um, you know, that you understand it in that context as well. So what are my pet hates when it comes to home design? Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> I do have quite a few. <laughs> And it comes with looking at a lot of homes and a lot of designs, but I want to focus in on the ones that I actually believe create dysfunctional rooms and spaces and homes and the ones that really cause regular frustration in your everyday life. I could, <laughs> I could go to town on the ones that I think are just simply unnecessary or overkill, you know, that I see are waste of, you know, wastes of space that are poor investments of budget 
that really don't enhance lifestyle or, or simply aren't sustainable choices. But I'm also aware I don't want to be judgmental, okay? At the end of the day, if you, you know, as I mentioned in the last episode, what you design and invest in is totally your choice and it's your money, it's your home, it's your future. Now, I might sneak a couple of these in just because I like to challenge you and have you be curious about this, but please, you know, understand it's it's purely because I just don't see them enhancing family life. Um, and there are often things that homeowners let run away from them. So I'm going to mention a couple um, because I've just seen that as they've been tested over time, they haven't served the homeowners like they thought they would. So let's go through some of these now. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's going to be a start for you, okay? Now, this first idea is more than a pet hate in home design. This is actually something I'd ban if I could. It's the use of the full width sliding glass door as the external door on a laundry. So picture this, and I suspect that you'll have seen this or you may even have it in your home. The laundry will be a room with a bench top and a washing machine down one side. And at the end of the room where the external wall is uh, and there's an exit to outside, the design will have a glass sliding door that's full width. So it will run from wall to wall of the laundry, across the width of the laundry. So the laundry might be roughly 1.6 to 1.8 metres wide and the sliding glass door is about the same width on the external wall. Now, what this means is that you end up with your laundry joinery actually butting up against it, runs up to the fixed glass side of the glass sliding door. And or worse, what will happen is they actually leave a gap at the end of the room where the glass sliding door is up against that to put your washing machine and your dryer in. So this means that you're going to end up, if you've got joinery up to the glass at that point, you're going to have this awkward gap between the end of the joinery uh, where it meets the glass of the glass sliding door where the fixed glass panel is um, or where your washing machine goes. And and then this will be difficult to finish neatly. It'll be difficult to maintain and to clean. And standing on the outside looking in, you're going to see, obviously see through that fixed glass panel of the glass sliding door to the side of your joinery or the side of your washing machine that's behind the glass. Now, if your washing machine is positioned down there next to the glass door and you're shoved in the corner, then you're going to be trying to unload and, uh, and load washing whilst up against that sort of glass sliding door. And, and also... That can become impossible if, um, based on if you've got a front-loading washing machine and your door opens against the glass sliding door as well. It can mean that you have a lot of challenges getting washing in and out of the washing machine when it's up that end of the laundry. Now, the worst bit about this design is that in a room, I've seen this generally in rooms that are 1.6 to 1.8 metres wide, but I've even seen it in narrower rooms. And what will happen is that then that glass sliding door itself, the whole unit of the sliding panel and the fixed panel, that will then be roughly 1.4 metres to 1.6 metres in width. And so that means that when that glass sliding door opens, if it's got a D handle on it or if even it's got a, a vertical handle on it, it won't open fully. That handle butts against where the frame of the fixed glass is. You'll find that uh, the, the opening size of that glass sliding door is not going to be comfortably wide enough for you to get in and out whilst you're carrying a basket of wet washing. Plus, when you're if you try to open a glass sliding door whilst having a washing basket in your hands, um, that's not easy at all. 
they regularly do this setup in project and volume homes uh, because what it does is by having the glass sliding door at the end of the laundry, it just simplifies the detailing of the external wall of the laundry and also of the internal wall as well. And the glass sliding door is a comparative low cost way of being able to provide natural light and an exit out of the laundry. It means that they can do it full width and then they can minimise the wall linings uh, and the external wall materials in that location. I really encourage you to try and avoid it. What I suggest instead is that you do an aluminium framed hinged glass door that opens outwards. Uh, an 820 millimetre door is great. You can do a 920 millimetre door if you want a more generous opening. Um, you can obscure the glass if you want some privacy in the room. You know, But this way you'll get natural light into the space through that glass door plus with the door opening outwards, it's going to shed any water to the outside if it's been raining and it's going to be easy for you to basically open with a lever handle as you're walking out as well. Now, if you want ventilation without having to open the door, uh, the laundry door itself, um, then you can add a window beside the door above bench height and you can um, have the joinery then go up to the underside of that window uh, and, and to meet the wall um, itself. Uh, so, you know, thinking about all of that, the way that this best works is if you keep the circulation zone in the laundry itself. So if you've got bench, benches and washing machine down one side, the gap then to the wall on the opposite side, you want it to be about 1.1 to 1.2 metres away so that you've got that 1.1 to 1.2 metres um, circulation zone. So that's about four feet for um, those of you listening who don't do metric. And that's about, it's a similar dimension to a kitchen setup. So, um, and it really, you really do need that space for clear access uh, to the joinery and to be able to walk through to outside in a laundry. Now, if you need help with visualizing the door arrangement of the sliding door um, as that external door that I've been describing here, if you just want to see an image of it, then uh, head to the resources for this podcast episode because I've actually got uh, an image, um, uh, a link to an image there that I can share with you that'll explain exactly what I'm talking about and make this really clear for you. Now the next pet that I uh, the next pet hate that I have in home design is the triple window layout for the front elevation of a home. So this is another project and volume home special. What will happen is you'll have the elevation of a house and on the lower floor if or if it's a single story home on the on the main floor, you'll across the width of the facade you'll have the garage the entry space and then another room all facing the street. Um, and that room can sometimes be a study or it can be a second living space. It might even be the main bedroom depending on what the overall layout of the home is doing. Now that room facing the street, and you may have seen this yourself, it will have a three window arrangement that looks out onto the street. There'll either be three long narrow um, uh, vertical slots or there'll be three horizontal narrow slots. So three in a row vertically or three running side by side. Uh, did that make sense? Three, three running, um, three uh, one above the other uh, on the facade or running side by side, vertical narrow slots. Yeah. So now the thing about this is arranging things in threes, it's it's often seen as a balanced design device. Arranging things in odd numbers is considered by many to be a means of creating, you know, good design arrangements. If you think about flower arrangement, you always put things together in odd numbers. You know, a raft of other design devices use this idea of odd numbers, groups of three in order to, to create, you know, sort of a particular kind of look. In home design, 
I suspect that they started adding this to elevations because it was seen as a way to make that front elevation seem more interesting, you know, um, to sort of have that pattern happening. What it does though, by having these three sort of narrow windows, either running vertically or horizontally, is that it actually creates challenges for the use of the room inside, how you actually put furniture up against that wall uh, and and how busy that wall will look, for, particularly from the inside looking out, because you'll end up with three sort of puncture spots that are all framed with architraves around them, like picture frames. And then, of course, you extend on to the fact that it's pretty challenging to put window furnishings or, you know, you end up with three little blinds on these, you know, sort of narrow either horizontal or vertical windows. Um, and then also how limited the light and ventilation is from these these windows as well. And, you know, oftentimes people think that they don't need a lot of visibility from these front rooms out to the street, but they're really important for natural surveillance. And you can do that and still maintain privacy into the home as well. So, you know, I find that often these get done as just three fixed glass windows and they're, they're really purely for show on the street elevation. And I, I think this happens because when a lot of people look at their front elevations, they're reviewing them almost like a graphic exercise, you know, in two-dimensional lines and shapes on a page and they forget that it's a three-dimensional object that actually needs to function for your home and your lifestyle overall. So I encourage you that when you're designing the windows and the glass doors for your home, that you think about how you're going to be, you know, how those those window and door choices are going to be impacting that experience of looking for being inside and looking out and how they're going to shape and frame the view, how they're going to provide natural light and ventilation and actually enhance the experience of the space that they're in and then what you're going to do about window furnishings and security and those kinds of things. Don't view them as a way to trick up your home's facade or to try to make the elevation seem more graphically balanced through how you might arrange those windows um, but then ultimately compromise the functionality of those rooms and the home overall. You know, use the overall design to achieve the facade that you want in the home's actual form and its shape rather than the patterning of the windows and the doors that you put into it. Now, my next pet hate is the internalised home theatre. If you spent any time listening to me and Undercover Architect or reading anything I write, this will not be a surprise to you. I've spoken about this before. I find that this internalised home theatre, it's often the result of a wide floor plan that's just been poorly resolved um, and it'll end up having sort of this space in the guts of it. And these internal theatre rooms, they get located they get made as rooms in the middle of the floor plan and they're away from natural light and ventilation of an external wall. Um, and they're, they're essentially a dead space in the middle of this poorly designed wide floor plan. And in most cases, because of their lack of natural ventilation and light, they're not going to be deemed a habitable space in regards to building codes, which is what's actually required for something to be called a living area. Um, so theatre rooms like this, they're more often than not actually just large storerooms as far as a lot of building regulations are concerned. They, you know, this lacking of natural light and ventilation, I find they can get pretty gross after continued use. And I've seen, of course, these spaces get decked out with audiovisual setups, you know, big screens, big surround sound, terrace seating, big recliners, you know, other things that will simulate sort of that gold class cinema experience that, that some people are wanting to have in their home. However, more often than not, I've found that many actually regret including them down the track or buying a house with it um, because they don't use them anywhere near as much as they anticipated they would and they actually have found they be, they become pretty gross um, after using them for an extended period of time. So it's worth instead you trying to replan the floor plan itself, the actual design, to see if you can avoid creating that fat in the middle of the floor plan that ends up being dark and unventilated and has to be given a use, you know, that sort of makes 
supposed sense, you know. One way that I've avoided this in wide floor plans is actually to consider, you know, where the storage is positioned. Plus I look at how the outside spaces around the home work, you know, to see if they, if the way that they're introduced can help with reducing the amount of dead space in the middle of the floor plan. And you can also review how the home is arranged to top light these spaces as well in the guts of your floor plan. So it might be, you know, with skylights and things like that. So for example, with a single story, of course, that can be pretty straightforward. You can include skylights in the roof over these spaces so that you can get some better use and functionality out of them. Uh, With a two-story home, it might be then thinking about exactly where the upper floor is located on the lower floor and whether you can expose, you know, the roof of certain parts of the lower floor to get more light in or um, and get some of you know these skylights over these internalized areas or in a two-story home you know the stairs can be actually a really good thing to include in the middle of the floor plan to position them there because the, the stair void can do a lot to provide natural light and ventilation within the guts of the floor plan on the lower floor because of what you can do with the vertical space and top lighting and windows upstairs so In season six of the podcast, um, it's all about designing for difficult sites. I've actually got a specific episode on designing for wide frontage sites. Um, That may be a really helpful episode if you're dealing with this at your place and how to think about how to do a wide floor plan. Uh, And there's also a free downloadable transcript of that episode um, and I'll pop a link for you in the resources for all of that. Now, my next uh, home design pet hate is when balconies are included off kids' bedrooms on upper floors. So for me, this is really a safety issue. I actually um, am not a big fan of this generally. This also extends to uh, balconies off upper floor living spaces that will be used by kids too. Um, I find that upper floor kids' bedrooms with balconies they mean, of course, that you'll have doors opening out onto balconies. That means that kids can get out to, to external spaces um, and those external spaces will be a story or more above the ground. Now, I find that some will do this because they want they want that indoor-outdoor connection. Uh, they'll also do it because they want balconies on their street elevation um, and they put the main bedroom at the rear of the home and the kids' bedrooms on the street side. And so the balconies might be added to provide cover to the entry below or to give the front facade depth and articulation and a particular appearance that they're seeking. But even if your kids are older, the home is, you know, and you're not worried about them sort of getting access to those balcony spaces and it being a safety issue. I find that the home, you know, you've got to remember your home's most likely going to last longer than your family lives in it. Ideally it does. And so I prefer to not include them at all. Uh, for, you know, what future owners might move into it as, and, you know, and not including them is a good cost saving. So uh, it, it can just be better to to look for other means that can create some depth and articulation. Uh, so it might be that you actually just create a dedicated roof over the entry so that you've got that cover and you've got that uh, architectural feature on the front of the home. You could consider how the building form works overall. So perhaps you're pushing and pulling p- certain parts of the floor plan to get that that interest on the street elevation. Or you could also review your material use, uh, your landscaping design, you know, all of those kinds of things can assist with really uh, achieving that particular aesthetic that you're seeking for your home. Now, the next uh, home design pet hate that I have <laughs> is, um, and and this one is largely for those of you who might be 
looking at new homes, but also renovating. I still see this turning up in new home designs, believe it or not. It's the use of the 45 degree angles in hallway walls and on the corners of rooms. So these were a big thing in the 1980s project home and volume built homes, particularly when hallways were narrow and they dog legged into a house past rooms at the front. But I still, like I said, I still see them getting used in home designs these days. Now this 45 degree chamfer gets added in the hallways so that turning the corner in the dog leg um, doesn't feel as harsh or as much of a dead end. And then often as well, a door will be added on that 45 degree chamfer to try and open up the feeling of the hallway overall and provide access to the room at that point. I, I understand why these are used, but again, I find that they're often a symptom of how rooms are being arranged in a floor plan and the design of the circulation being an afterthought rather than part of the original design consideration. You know, when you create this type of winding and doglegging in how you move into a house, whether it's, you know, with a 90 degree turn or a 45 degree angle on that chamfering, um, it's going to make the home feel like a rabbit warren and it's a it's just a spaciousness killer when it comes down to it. You actually don't need, though, to have big wide hallways or long straight hallways in order for a, a home to feel spacious. So don't think it's one or the other. Um, but when you're designing that hallway entry into your home and the circulation overall, consider where you're going to be able to create long lines of sight both through and beyond the home. And, and if you do have long hallways, consider how you're going to be able to create breathing spaces along them, such as living spaces or staircases or, you know, external courtyards, because having those as you're moving along the hallway, they can provide views sideways that can help the hallway feel uh, more open and not as much of a gun barrel um, effect as well. And I've got a couple of links to share with you about hallway design, about avoiding hospital corridor hallways and about the design of entries as well. So you can review this in more detail if you head to the resources for this podcast episode. Another pet hate that I have is double entry doors into homes generally and also uh, I see them getting used for the main bedroom. So there's a couple of ways this is done. One is to have two equally sized door panels that open up into the main bedroom or as the main entry into the home overall. Um, or it can be done as a double door where the main door is, the is you know, a standard door and then they've got a smaller side door. So when it opens, it widens the overall opening into the into the home itself or into the bedroom. Now, I know that, the, that those who actually include this, they often do it because they want to create a sense of grandeur and generosity in the way that these doors feel and function. And as two panels, they create a larger opening overall, of course. There's a sense of sort of walking in and pushing both doors open and the sweeping motion of that and the widening of the entry as a result and that feeling really lovely and generous. There is a problem with this though. In reality, usually only one door is being used on a regular basis. And so often in the double door designs, the individual panels are actually narrower than a standard door opening. So when one panel is the one being used all the time, it can actually create quite a mean and tight entry in and out of the space because it's not the size of a standard door. Now in a main bedroom, what you'll find is opening that second panel based on where the door is positioned in the wall into a room, you know, opening that second panel means that it'll just swing into the bedroom space and, and create a space in that room that just can't be furnished because of the, the necessary door swing that's happening sort of in the middle of the room as, as that second panel opens. And, and depending where that door is located in that room, that, that second panel will often need a, a hinge that will open 180 degrees so it can open back against the wall that's beside it um, or it'll just be sitting fixed 
in the middle of the space and something that you have to move around or it, it bashes against whatever furniture you've got, you know, sitting beside the door opening on that wall. So, you know, it's really worth considering how you're going to get these things to work if you do want to include them in your home. If you're using double doors for reasons that are associated with getting, you know, large pieces of furniture in and out of the house because of access issues and those kinds of things, or because perhaps, you know, I've, I've known of homeowners that they regularly entertain large groups of people. They have a big extended family. And so this idea of, you know, being able to open both doors and have everybody move in and out really easily from through the front of the house, that's made a lot of sense. You know, that that's the, you know, if there's those kinds of functional reasons driving it, then that's totally great. However, if it's for effect, if you think it's going to be sort of this lovely sweeping grand sort of feeling, um, then then make sure that the individual panel of the door that you're going to be using is still an 820 millimeter door leaf um, or a standard, you know, which is a standard door panel because uh, then even if you've just got one panel open, it's still going to feel sufficient to move through easily on a day-to-day basis and not compromise the functionality of that door opening. Uh, now, another pet hate of mine is perimeter kitchens. So if you've done my kitchen design challenge mini course, uh, which you can buy on its own, or that kitchen design challenge is included inside interior design 101, or of course, if you're a member of home method, uh, and you've accessed the resources there, you'll know, I am not a fan of U-shaped kitchens. I feel that U-shaped kitchens are not functional in family homes. I feel that they create too many corners and dead spaces that compromise their use, even with all the lazy Susans and the trickery of corner cupboards and things like that. I just feel that they just do not work over the long term. I find that they trap people within them and that can make them feel crowded to use and can be really challenging. And uh, the opposite bench tops in a U-shaped kitchen, they often end up being further apart than the recommended dimension of 1.2 metres. Um, and so that becomes challenging to use uh, ergonomically compared to a galley kitchen. Now, perimeter kitchens, they are a version of U-shaped kitchens where there's actually walls surrounding the kitchen on three or four sides. And the bench tops actually just simply wrap around. They follow these walls um, as a perimeter. Now you'll see this type of design in lots of older homes where the kitchen was actually in a room of its own uh, and, you know, the the benches then ran around the perimeter of this room. However, I have seen it brought into new homes where the kitchen is located in a part of the floor plan that projects from the overall facade. So it might be where you have like the living, the dining and the kitchen all in an open plan, you know, space that run along the outer edge, all opening out to an alfresco area, but the kitchen will push forward. It'll jut into the alfresco area and it'll end up being its own little room um, that's forward of the facade and and then the bench top runs the perimeter along the inside of those projected walls. And, and sometimes it'll be done to create a servery or a window from the kitchen out into that alfresco area. Now, I really do suggest that if you can avoid planning a kitchen like this, it's a good idea to avoid it. So, you know, family kitchens I find work much better as an L-shaped with an island or a galley style, which is when you've got the back bench and then you've got the um, island opposite, or even just simply as one long run of a kitchen without an island bench. Kitchens are one of those areas in the floor plan where the human dimensions of like how we're actually shaped, how we use space, you know, what our reach is, what our stepping distance is, you know, the ergonomics, um, they become really critical to the overall functionality of the space. And so, you know, it's always worthwhile you're researching and reviewing the ideal dimensions for your kitchen design and thinking about the detail of what you want in your kitchen, what you want to put in it, appliances and those kinds of things and how you want it to be 
right at the beginning of your home design journey. And we include, include all of this inside Home Method because it's actually really hard to, to change the layout of the kitchen once the floor plan has been arranged, if you haven't thought of it already. It's so much better to inform the home design layout at the start with your ideal kitchen arrangement, to brief your designer with that, whoever you're working with, what your ideal kitchen arrangement is, what you want to put in it, so that that information goes into how the floor plan is shaped and sized, rather than trying to squeeze your ideal kitchen into your existing floor plan. So what's my next pet hate in home design? Well, (laughs) I would personally love for homeowners to really reconsider doing en-suites for their kids' bedrooms and also perhaps review whether a walk-in robe is necessary for a kid's bedroom also. I did say that I'd slip in a couple of pet hates that are more related to decisions that I just don't think are in the best interest of the planet and the environment and I also don't think enhance the functionality of the home overall. So one is the inclusion of en-suites for kids' bedrooms. I'm seeing, you know, I do see it happen a lot um, in homes where kids' bedrooms will all be en-suited. Now, as a side note, I remember hearing an interview on one of Brené Brown's podcasts. She was speaking to Esther Perel, who is a Belgian psychotherapist. And Brené actually asked Esther, you know, what do you say to parents who feel that they, they're always having to say to their kids, you have no idea how good you've got it. You know, you've got it so much better than I had it. In my day, things were so different and they complain that their kids don't understand and they aren't grateful for all that they have. And I'm sure you can relate. I know I have said this to my children. You don't know how good you've got it. (laughs) And Esther's response was something that really, really stuck with me. She said, well, the truth is that your kids have it better than you had it because you want them to. It's always what we want as parents for our kids to have things better than we had them. And, you know, I definitely see this happening in the way that family home designs have changed over time. You know, they just continue to grow and to to be more than what we grew up with. And I think there's that. And also the fact that we do get a level of access um, inside the homes of celebrities and uber wealthy people that we didn't use to via reality TV programs and social media. So I do see homeowners wanting to give their kids more than what they had. And I, and part of this is that they give their kids en-suites. Their kids have their own en-suite bathrooms. Uh, or if there's an imbalance of boys and girls in the family, um, they'll give them bathrooms for each gender. So it might be that there's two boys and one girl. So the girl will get her own bathroom, the boys share a bathroom or, you know, vice versa. Um, so that they, they don't have to share and the girl's got privacy from, from the boys experiencing the bathroom. Now, you know... Yeah. And so that's why I see people including these sort of number of bathrooms in their family homes. Now, not as challenging, but it's I think it's still questionable in my mind is when kids' bedrooms include walk-in robes. And so uh, I do often see these end up being dark, sort of unventilated storage cupboards where there's more floor area that ultimately becomes a dumping ground for loads of stuff. Now, kids' bedrooms and the other sort of spaces and things that are associated with them, the functions that you want in them, they're a really great area in your floor plan that can reduce the building footprint overall and also, of course, the cost of your home. So, you know, a well-designed built-in robe that can accommodate clothing and toys and other items and and then you can create a centralised, more specifically designed storage area in the home that can deal with the seasonal uh, items that you need to store, sporting stuff, whatever, and large items that kids might have. 
you know, and then a family bathroom. It can be designed to accommodate use by various kids at one time by how you arrange the spaces of the vanity, the toilet and the bath and the shower. We talked about the three-way bathroom or the, de- the deconstructed bathroom um, was another name for it in episode 238 in my conversation with Jane Hilliard from Designful. You know, bathrooms generally, they are a cost-intensive area. Uh, they're also a moisture-generating area in your home and they require decent maintenance over time as well. So consider how many of them you really want to include in your home, how big you want to make them and, um, and how you want to ultimately get true functionality from them. What else? Well, this is the last one I'll mention. I'd love for homeowners to stop using laminate flooring. I'd love to ban it as a product. I'd love for it to never exist. (laughs) And hybrid flooring and vinyl flooring, they're also not favourites either. So if you are wanting to use this type of flooring for your home, please check its sustainability credentials, its performance overall, the volatile organic compounds, the level of toxicity, how it's made, you know, the the waste products that that are created during its production. Choose wisely and and do your research before you put this kind of stuff into your home. Uh, If you want to hear more about these flooring choices and why they're not a favourite of mine, uh, then I'd suggest checking out the episodes on flooring in season 11 of the podcast and I'll pop a link in the resources for you. And that's it. So I do hope that you found those helpful. Of course, these aren't the biggest mistakes I see get made in home design. They are pet hates of mine that I see crop up time and time again. I find that they can definitely limit the functionality of a design uh, and they're easy to avoid as well. However, there are much bigger mistakes that get made in home design all of the time. And so if you'd like to hear more about the biggest home design mistakes that get made and you're listening to this podcast around the time of its release uh, or before before early August 2022, then make sure you join me on my free online workshop that I'm hosting. I'm going to be talking about the top five home design mistakes that are commonly made uh, when homeowners begin designing their home, whoever you're working with, whether it's an architect, a building designer, a builder, draftsperson, doing it yourself. I'm going to take you through the top five home design mistakes. I'm also going to be sharing my start system for home design success. And so this will give you some actionable help so that you can just skip the potential stuff ups, regrets and frustrations and create a fantastic functional and feel good home. So if you're getting started on your home design or you plan to soon and whether you're renovating or you're building new, this I know that this online workshop is going to be super helpful for you. You can save your free spot by heading to www.com www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash design mistakes. That's all one word, D-E-S-I-G-N mistakes. Okay. I'd love to see you there and be able to share this information with you. Remember too, that if you want a free downloadable PDF transcript of this podcast episode, number 244, plus all the links that I've mentioned, I've I've provided some extra pointers for you and things to look at. You can get that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 244. That's the numbers 244. Now, as always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.